God, I feel like so many people are against me right now. They keep telling me you can't help. But I believe you will protect me. You are the one who is with me and who answers me when I call out to you. When I go to sleep, I trust you will sustain me. I will not fear those who are after me. Rescue me, God. Destroy my enemies. My victory is in you. We are in the middle of our Storytellers series, and uh, we've been looking at the book of Psalms and taking a picture of uh, David's life. Uh, just to kind of catch you up a little bit, on week one, uh, we shared an idea that God has a, a better story for your life than, than maybe what you're living right now. And last week, we talked about um, murder and adultery. It was a wonderful Sunday um, as we really breached those two subjects. But no, we talked about David's life some more from Psalm chapter 51 and this week it just gets better because not only uh, do we have murder and um, incest, we also have uh, family rivalry. So it's going to be a great day, really inspirational. Um, but it is interesting how God will move in a way that uh, sets you up for the, the word that you're going to deliver. It's a lot easier that way, uh, to be honest with you. It's much easier when God has already prepared the ground for what uh, what he's led you to say, and so that's going to be, it's going to be great. Just a couple of uh, things before we jump into the, the Word this morning. Um, you will want to get ready. I, I don't know if you are an NFL football fan like I am. I love football. I'm so excited that uh, millionaires finally got together to agree how to uh, use money. Well, I should say billionaires and millionaires finally decided how they were going to split nine billion dollars so that I could watch football on TV. Um, it's petty, but anyway, uh, I mean, you're playing a sport, dude. You're having fun on a Sunday, and you're getting 20 million dollars a year, and you own a team, and you're a billionaire. Just shut up and give us the game for free, right? So anyway, in, in a few weeks, uh, particularly the first Sunday and the second Sunday in Labor Day, uh, we're going to do something pretty fun for two weeks as we gear up towards our fall launch, which is on September 18th, and I'm going to encourage you, if you have a college football jersey, you want to make plans to wear that on Labor Day weekend. If you have an NFL Pro jersey, you want to make plans to wear that the next Sunday. So for two Sundays, we're all going to be dressed up in football gear to celebrate the kickoff of both of those seasons and, uh, more importantly, to uh, kind of everybody get on the same page and gear up for what God is going to do in our midst and in our church this fall. Uh, also, not just in a few weeks, but next week you want to be here because I am going to share everything you ever needed to know about God in one Sunday. And trust me, it's more simple than you think. Everything you could ever need to know in your entire life about God you're going to find out next Sunday. So you want to make plans to be here. Uh, some of you are thinking, I'm not going to, it's going to be long. It's not going to be long. It's going to be very short, very simple, uh, but it will cover everything you ever needed to know. Uh, but today we have an awesome 
psalm to look at together. To get started, let me ask you a question. This is a great icebreaker. How many of you have ever been betrayed? <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that a great icebreaker, you know? Hey, have you ever been betrayed? Welcome to church, right? You've been hurt, let down, you know, somebody, somebody dropped the ball. Now, maybe they didn't sabotage your entire life. Maybe they did. Um, maybe they didn't cause you to get fired at your work, but maybe they did. But in some way or some form, you've been let down. You've been hurt. Somebody uh, dropped you. Somebody left you. Somebody failed you. Somebody hurt you. Could you just respond one more time by living your hand, raising your hands if that's you? Somebody at some point in your life has hurt you, failed you, left you. Okay. Just wanted to see if today's message was going to be relevant to anybody. Uh, it's going to make sense. I know it's a weird thing to admit, but what I actually want you to do now is kind of get that in your mind. Go ahead and think about that. That hurt, that pain, that feeling of betrayal. Go ahead and think about those times, and we're going to jump into Scripture and see what God would have to say to us about those things. You've been looking at David's life. David wrote a lot of the Psalms, and we've been actually reading the book of Psalms together as a church uh, through the month of August. If you don't have a plan, you can still get one at the VIP table and jump in in the middle, and then at the end of the month, you can go back and catch up on what you missed. Uh, we just want to do this together as we soak in God's Word. But I do feel like, you know, I started thinking as I was preparing this, if David were here, what would he say to us? I kind of feel like David would say, hold on, man. You're like pulling out every negative thing that ever happened in my life. You know, some good things happen too. And I think we would tell David, you know what, you're right. But man, the, 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 the crisis moments, the, the moments that are dramatic, that's what sells. That's what we're interested in. The crisis, dramatic moments of your life. Yeah, we know, you know, you took down giants, you slayed thousands and thousands, but we want to hear about the dirty stuff, the stuff that sells newspapers and magazines and tabloids. We want to hear about that. And so we're going to jump into another one of those today. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, would you open it to Psalm chapter 3? And we're jumping backwards. The first week we looked at Psalm 15, last week we looked at Psalm 51. This time we are jumping back to near the beginning of the book. We're going to look at Psalm chapter 3. If you're my friend on Facebook or you follow me on Twitter, you got the homework assignment this week, midweek, which was to read 2 Samuel chapter 13 through 19. And if you're not my friend on Facebook, then you should be because we post stuff on there and, and to to kind of give you an idea of what we're going to be talking about on the weekend, because I think my job as a, as a teaching pastor is not just to get up here and spoon feed you the Word of God, but to create inside of you a hunger so that when you leave here, you get into your own Bible and you, you get to know God on your own and you develop that personal relationship with Him and you're not dependent upon somebody on the stage behind a pulpit telling you what the Bible says, that you actually are reading it for yourself. But some of you aren't my Facebook friends, and some of you don't even use Facebook, and that's fine. You know what, that's, that's perfectly okay if you don't want to do that and join the rest of us as we interact with each other. But you know, it's fine. It's okay. 
All the real Christians are on Twitter, though. That's actually... No, but seriously, in uh, Psalm 3, uh, there's this there's this response to a story that's going on in David's life that you can find in 2 Samuel 13 through 19. And I kind of want to fill you in on what Scripture says in those chapters so that, so that you can kind of get an idea of, of the person that Psalm chapter 3 is actually being written by. You can kind of feel the pain and anguish in his words and then the hope that comes through at the end. You know, at this point in David's life, this is some really, really, really just nasty, scandalous stuff. I mean, I couldn't imagine a more dysfunctional family than David's family. I mean, if David's family were to look at, at like, Hollywood families today, like the Cardassians or, uh, you know, the Lohans or the Jacksons or something, David's family would just laugh. <laughs> you think that's dysfunctional? You haven't seen anything yet. Because David's family is messed up. I mean, it is full of just dirty stuff. And I'm going to try to... Today's story is very graphic, very mature. And I'm going to try to, you know, paint the right picture, but not offend you. But it's going to be hard because sometimes Scripture is offensive. And if you've never read this portion of Scripture, then you might think the Bible's boring... But it's the furthest thing from boring that you could find. In fact, this story kind of starts in Psalm chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 12 with David and Bathsheba. We talked about that last week, where David actually has a man killed after he has an affair with his wife. He has the guy killed. And then Nathan the prophet comes to David and he sticks his finger and he says, You are the man that's guilty of this sin. And David or Nathan tells David, the sword will never leave your family. And over the next few chapters, you get a first-hand look at, at that exact prophecy. You know, David experienced a lot of victories in his, life, in his life, but he also experienced a lot of failure. And the story that we're looking at today is probably David's greatest failure. It's definitely David's greatest family failure. You see, David had a son named Amnon, it was David's oldest son, and this kid was messed up in the head. I mean, he was so messed up in the head, he probably grew up in Kentucky. <laughs> or Nebraska. And I'll tell you why, because he had the hots for his sister. I mean, it says that lust burned inside of him for his sister Tamar, or Tamar, depending on where you put the emphasis on the syllable. Like I said, i got to keep it light, and i got to keep you laughing, because it gets really gross. He had the hots for her, and so he, he devised this scheme to get her to come to his room. He pretended to be sick. And he asked the king, he said, King, will you send my sister Tamar to my room to hand feed me? He wants her to, he wants to eat out of her hands, okay? This is the story that he tells. That's why he wants Tamar to come to his room, because he's sick, he can't get up and fix his own food, so he wants Tamar to come. So she comes, she's got the, the food ready, and she's feeding him, and then he rapes her, his own sister. This is David's son. You know, the guy after God's own heart. 
the child that he raised, rapes his sister. And she screams out and she says, no, this isn't right. You can't do this to me. You have disgraced me. But he does it anyway. And when it's over, he hates her. He has his momentary fill of, of, of what he, his lust and his, his desire for her. And then he hates her. And scripture says he kicks her out of the room and bolts the door. He won't even let her, let her back in. He completely pushes her away and locks the door and shuns her, basically. Well, her life is devastated. Because in that time, her life is over. And she runs off to her brother Absalom's house. And Absalom hears about this and he is furious. And David hears about it and he's furious too. But David doesn't do anything about it. We're talking about the king. The king of the land hears that his little girl got raped by his oldest son and he doesn't do squat about it this point in David's life, he's become very passive. He's a very passive dad. And it's strange to think that this man who once stared down giants and slayed thousands won't face the dysfunction in his own family. You know, David's like a lot of dads that may be in this auditorium. You'll do great things outside of your family. You'll face down giants at work but you won't even get active in your own kid's spiritual development. I would encourage you not to live like David in this example. Get involved in your kids' lives. Take an interest in them. Help develop them. It's not just their mama's job. It's your job. Anyway, that's a side. That's, that's free of charge. So Absalom is furious. And for two years he sits on his anger. He just stirs and, and plots and schemes for two years. And this is the plot. Here's the story he came up with. He invited all of the king's sons to his house for a party. It's actually a sheep shearing party. And they all show up, which tells me that the nightlife in Israel is not that good. If you're showing up to a sheep shearing party. Hey, come on. Come over to my house. We're going to shear some sheep together. I got nervous because that, like sheep shearing, that's almost like a tongue twister. And if you keep saying it, you might offend like everybody in the audience. I am fighting my ADD like crazy right now. <laughs> I'm just letting you know. I'm being honest. So anyway, he invites all of the king's sons and they all show up, including Amnon. Amnon shows up. You think, come on, dude, it's your brother that's angry with you. You don't show up. But he shows up and he gets wasted. I mean, you're talking the wine is flowing like crazy. Everybody's getting drunk. Sheep are getting sheared. Furs flying around everywhere. And Amnon is laid out wasted. I mean, he is just KO'd, liquored up, drunk, off his rocker. And then Absalom grabs his men, and his men grab, Ab grab Amnon and drag him behind the shed. And, you know, pig squilling deliverance is a crazy scene. But they kill him. Brutally, Absalom murders his brother who raped his sister. That's messed up. I don't care who you are. You might be from Kentucky or Nebraska. That's a dysfunctional family. I'm trying not to offend my own home state of West Virginia. But this is... 
And then Absalom takes off. He runs, he runs out. I mean, he's gone. For three years, he lives with his grandfather. For three years, nobody hears anything from Absalom. He's just hiding. He's trying to avoid everybody. And David doesn't care. David doesn't want him back. David is content to let him just stay away. But his servants talk to him and convince him, and David invites Absalom back. But David refuses to see him for two more years. Absalom comes back and is living back in Israel. And for two years, the king refuses. Scripture actually says he refuses to let Absalom see his face. For two years, Absalom's in town and David refuses to see him. Because again, at this point, David doesn't know how to deal with his own family's dysfunction. Because when you introduce sin into your family, a lot of times it's hard to take responsibility for it. Let's just call it what it is. And you're sitting there thinking, why are you telling us this? Well, I think this kind of humanizes Scripture. You know, because a lot of times we think that Scripture is written for and from people who are a lot more holier than we are. But when you find out the story that's going on in David's life and then we read the psalm, all of a sudden we realize that this is an invitation from a God who will meet us right where we are. You don't have to get cleaned up first. You know, this church exists for people who aren't sure where they are with God. Or, actually, a lot of times they know where they are with God and it ain't good. And so, we tell, I, I'm telling you this story because I want you to recognize none of us is perfect. Even David, this hero of the Bible, he's not perfect. His family is incredibly messed up. Yet God is ready to relate to him right where he is. So Absalom comes back, and Absalom, at this point, he's, he's a player, man. If it, did you know a kid, maybe in your high school or junior high, he would, he liked this girl. Now, I knew these people. I was never this kind of person um, like this. You know, I, I was messed up in other ways, but I was never Absalom. Because it, it, you know those guys who will, they like a girl, but she's got a boyfriend, and so they become her best friend. And then anytime that girl and her boyfriend have a fight, dude's standing there saying, well, if I was your boyfriend, I wouldn't treat you like that. You know what I mean? I wouldn't say that to you. I'd let you, you know, do what it, which then she needs to let, you know, let me do anything. That's Absalom. Absalom comes back and you know, it's hard to get in to see the king. He's backlogged. People are trying to see him all the time. And Absalom sets up shop at the city gate. And when people come in to see David and they get turned away or they don't get what they want, Absalom's right there as they're leaving town. And he asks, how would it go with the king? Well, I didn't get what I want. Or, well, I didn't get to see him. And so he says, well, if I were king, you would get what you wanted. You would get justice. I would have it set up and ordered so that you, I would have time for you. And you know what? He rallies so much support that he overthrows his father. He overthrows the kingdom and David has to split town. David has to run and hide and leave. The king gets knocked off of his throne and his son overthrows him. And when David's leaving, he sets up ten of his wives to run the palace and to run the kingdom. And the first thing that Absalom does, catch this, because if you read it, you might pass over it. But this is, 
it, it calls back to a different story. The first thing Absalom does when he, when he establishes his kingdom is that he sleeps with all ten of David's wives. Where? On the rooftop where everybody can see. Sounds like somebody is following an example of somebody else. Does it sound familiar? Sleeping with a woman that's not your wife, but is actually somebody else's wife on top of a roof. Sounds like David's getting, getting what he sowed. He's reaping. So Absalom gets a little bit of pride in his life, and he gets a little off his, off his game, and he's pursuing David, but he makes a miscalculation, and 20,000 of his men are killed by David's men. And in fact, David had released a statement that said, do not harm, deal, the scripture says, to deal gently with Absalom. David doesn't want a, a hair on Absalom's head messed up, but as Absalom is riding, his hair get, literally gets caught in the branches of trees. And his ride goes on and he's dangling there from the tree by his hair. And Joab, the commander of David's army, comes by with three javelins and jabs it into his chest. And if that's not enough, they pull him down and his men completely slaughter him. Bury and throw, him, throw, throw some rocks over top of him. And at some point during all of that crazy, chaotic dysfunction in David's life, he pins the words in Psalm 3. And with that background, all of that mess and craziness and what in the world's going on, let's read Psalm chapter 3. And let's see if those words resonate with, with both fear of what's going on in my situation, but also with redemption and hope. Psalm chapter 3. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Have you ever felt like that? Like everybody's out to get you? Like everybody's out to hurt you? Like everybody's saying there's no way you're going to survive this. You don't have a chance. There's no hope for you. David felt like that. Verse 3, But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. What kind of crazy, God-inspiring peace and presence do you must, must you live in to have that mess going on in your life and be able to lay down and sleep? He says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear tens of thousands assail me on every side. Now, I don't know what kind of thing you've had to go through, and I don't know what your problem is, but let's put your problem in perspective. Let's put my problem in perspective. I doubt any of us in the room have tens of thousands of people ready to take us out. Let's put our problem today in perspective. I know, you're, I know your life is messed up, and I know it's hard, and I know you don't know how you're going to make it, but I doubt you've got this. I doubt your oldest son raped your daughter, and then your other son killed him. 
and has overthrown you. I doubt. So if God can minister to David in that situation, I'm pretty sure he's got you covered. I'm pretty sure he can take care of you. David says in verse 7, Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. I like that. Break the teeth of the wicked. Punch them in the mouth. That's good. Verse 8, from the Lord comes deliverance. In other other words, it's saying deliverance is a gift from God. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, for in the middle of the craziest, messed up, chaotic, dysfunctional circumstance that we find ourselves in, you are still God. And you are there for us and we can cry out to you and we can be healed by you and delivered by you. This morning, God, many people have already responded. May many more respond to your call and to your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. For the few minutes we've got together, I want to key in on verse 3. It's kind of, if you were going to cite a memory verse, this is what I hope you take away. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head on high. This week, I want you to know I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. Maybe, you know, maybe your parents got a divorce. Maybe your spouse walked out on you. Maybe your friend who promised they would never leave you is not there anymore. Maybe she broke up with you after Valentine's Day. You got her a big teddy bear. Maybe at work, you're the, maybe, maybe you are the hardest worker at your job and they cut you out of the promise that they, or the promotion they promised for you. Maybe they fired you when you were the best. Maybe you didn't make the team. Maybe your son didn't make the team and the councilman's son did and you know your boy's better or your girl's better. Whatever it is, whatever hurt you find yourself in the middle of, whatever pain, whatever betrayal, whatever anybody did to you, there are two things that you need to know when you find yourself in the middle of that. And they come from Psalm chapter 3, verse 3. The first one is this. It's one thing to have a shield in front of you, but it's a whole nother thing to have a shield all around you. You see, it's one thing for somebody to be protecting you from the front where you can see the attack. But it's another thing when God says, I am a shield around you. God is saying, I've got your back. When you even, even the moments and instances you can't see that people are trying to come against you, even the hurt that you don't see because it's coming from your back, I've got it under control. God says, I'm not only going in front of you to protect you, but I've got your back. God says, don't worry. You know, just reading the the Psalms the last couple of weeks, my life has just been filled with these promises of God that God never slumbers. 
God never sleeps. God never takes a break. God never closes his eyes. God never looks away. God is always faithful, always right there. And the one who made those promises said, I will be a shield all around you. Not just out in front. I'm all around, God says. Nothing that would ever happen to you in your life, no pain, no assault from the enemy, nothing that anyone could ever do to you will ever affect God's ability to bring out His purposes through your life. Because He's a shield all around you. Does that mean that He plans for people to hurt you and mistreat you? No. He doesn't plan for that to happen. That's not in his his course of the, the trajectory that he wants to take your life. But within the scope of whatever they do to you, whoever they are, if you can learn and if I can learn to leave our justice in the hands of God, there's not enough power in hell to derail God's purposes for your life. David learned that. David learned that the hard way, that even when it looks hopeless, even when everybody else is saying, you don't have a chance, a shot, everybody's out to get you, David learned that the Lord is his shield around him. You know, at this point in David's life, his countenance is pretty low. I mean, he's you got to imagine that when David's walking around, his, his head is down. Like when you're going through a bad day and a tough stretch and life just seems to be attacking you. The enemy seems to be coming against you from every side. A lot of times it's real easy to get your head down. And the second thing is, and I know this doesn't sound very profound, but simple things are what changes our what, what brings change in our lives but at this point David's head is down and through scripture God tells him that he's going to lift his head your head's down God's going to lift it like I said that's not very profound but here's what here's the catch and here's the part that's challenging here's the part that might hurt God can't lift the head that hasn't already been bowed to him first. God can't lift your head when your head's already up in pride. You see, I struggle with some things, and I'm going to be honest with you, one of the things that people call me on the most, and my wife can witness to this, I have a hard time not being right all the time. Even over petty stuff, even over dumb little stuff, I've got to be right. Because I struggle with pride. I think I'm really smart. And I think, I think most of the time people say stuff and they're wrong. And I correct them because that's what God has asked me to do. <laughs> no, but I have a, it, it expands to bigger things in my life. I have a hard time releasing people when they wrong me. I struggle with that. 
Because I want them not only to know they were wrong, but I want them to know how much they were wrong. Now, it might be petty or it might be serious, but I want them to know you were wrong and here's why. Because, I, like I said, I want to be right all the time. And the Lord may be my shield around me, but I want to pick up some arrows and start slinging them at people. I want to take up my own. God, you can be my defense, but I'm going to be my offense. I'm going to shoot as many arrows as I can. And maybe you're like that, waiting on an apology from somebody that it's never going to come. Let's be honest. Holding someone in a prison cell. But then when you trust in God and you choose to absorb the offense and trust in God's protection, you set someone free only to discover that the one who was in bondage was you. You set someone free from a prison of regret, a prison of a, of, of a grudge, only to realize that you are the one that was in prison. You're the one who needs to be set free. You see, what will keep us from the freedom that God has in store for us is that God can't lift our head because we haven't bowed our head to Him. We can't, He can't lift our head because we haven't bowed our head in humility. He can't lift our head because our head is so high we look like a rooster all full of pride. Looking down our nose at other people. Well, you wronged me. I'm right and you're wrong. But God can't lift your head because you haven't bowed your head. God can't lift the head that's already been lifted. And you can keep holding grudges. You can wait on that apology that, you know, they're 98% wrong. I only got 2% of this. They got 98%. You can keep doing that. But true freedom will never find you. Because true freedom comes, your head will be lifted when you first bow it before God. And you say, God, you are my glory. You are my defense and my offense. You are my rear guard. You are my justification. I bow my head in humility to you, trusting in your protection, your faithfulness, your leading, and your guiding. I don't have to get back at them. I don't have to take revenge on them. God, you will deal with them. I will bow my head in humility to you and let you lift my head. You're, maybe I haven't experienced your brand of betrayal. You haven't experienced mine. Just be honest. But the power of betrayal ends. Hurt ends. Pain ends when submission to God begins. You have to bow your head before it can ever be lifted. And you know what's funny? God will sometimes use the things that someone has done against you to get you where he wants you to go. And I don't understand that. But may, maybe the reason for that is woven into the crazy cosmic purposes of God. I don't understand how he does it, but I do know that God can work something good out of it. In verse 4, David says, I call out to the Lord. And he answers me 
from his holy mountain. You see, God sees it all. God's got a different perspective than I do. God's on his holy mountain. He can see everything and how all the pieces fit together. So I bow my head to his perspective and trust in his provision. The ultimate example of this is Jesus Christ. John chapter 13, Jesus is eating with his disciples. And it says that all authority had been given to Jesus. All power had been given to Jesus. And yet he's eating with Judas. Scripture says that the devil had already entered Judas and caused him to betray Jesus. You don't think Jesus knew about this? All authority and power has been given to this man. And his betrayer is sitting with him at the table. You don't think he knows this? But what is it? Does, does he rise up? No. God, I will bow my head to you in humility and trust in your protection. And the greatest moment of betrayal in human history occurs. It puts Jesus on the cross. This betrayal that trumps every betrayal that you and I could ever experience. And it leads to the single greatest accomplishment in all of human history. The forgiveness of your sins and my sins. You see, when we embrace God's purpose for us, the thing that they did to you can become the single greatest thing that God uses in you to do what he ultimately wants to do through you. Let me say that again. When whatever they did to you is submitted to God, then God can use that in you to bring his purposes out through you. We've been doing a, a reading through the book of Psalms, and if you haven't been doing that, I encourage you again to do that. We've also been fasting on Friday, so if you want to jump in on that, we've got two more Fridays left. And I, this week I was spending some time in prayer over, over this and just, over a lot, just taking a lot of different stuff to God. And uh, in my house, there's not a lot of quiet places. I've got a four-year-old, almost five-year-old, and a two-year-old. And I've got a little dog and a cat that won't let anybody be alone. Unless he doesn't know you, then he runs and hides. So there's not a lot of places for me to be alone. So literally, in my little, like, you know, three feet by two feet closet, I shut the door and my pants are, like, punching me in the face. And I'm sitting on top of shoes. And, but I'm alone and I'm praying. And as sure as I stand here, I heard God say, and I, did you hear God speak? The, no, it was a lot louder than if I heard him with my own ears. And he said, I use your wounds to bring healing to others. Isn't that what Jesus is? Isaiah talks about the wounds on his back would be for the healing, the stripes that he bore. You see, I'm not encouraging you to let people betray you. I'm not encouraging you to go looking for hurt and pain. I'm not encouraging you to go find somebody that's going to inflict pain on your life. But when it happens, and it'll happen, it's not over. It's not. You're not done. There's still hope. God Almighty is your shield. He will be your defense and your offense. The only thing that you're responsible for is submitting. And he'll lift your head. He'll vindicate you. He'll get revenge. He'll take care of it in this life or the next. 
But he can't lift your head if you've already got it lifted up. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we have experienced all sorts of different things in our lives. This room is representative of different kinds of hurt and pain, different kinds of experiences, all sorts of things, God. And what I might think is serious, someone else might think is silly. And what someone thinks is silly, another person might find that to be the most difficult thing to go through. But you, God, deal with us according to who we are and where we're at. This morning, Lord, people are going through all sorts of different things. Some are going through financial difficulties. Others are going through family problems. Some people, Lord, they hate going into work because they feel like everybody there is out to get them. Lord, would you assure people this morning that you are a shield around them? And then as they bow their head in submission to you, that you'll lift their head. That your glory is sufficient for them. While you're sitting there, hope's going to just lead us in a song. And right where you're at, without anybody coming and praying with you, without anybody, just between you and God right now, while hope sings, would you just release that? Just just release it. And it might be as simple as saying, God, you are my shield, and I submit my, my I submit to you. I bow my head to you. I release them of whatever wrong they did. You might have to do it today and tomorrow and the next day. But just right now, take that step and say, God, I release them. I let them. I bow my head to you. I don't have to get back at them. I don't have to take revenge. I don't have to. You'll vindicate me. I submit to you, God. While hope sings, I want to challenge you to to pray that. And you may have to pray it again and again and again and again. But as long as you continue to bow your head in submission to God, you'll be in a position where He can lift your head and He'll be your glory and He'll be your healing. He'll be your hope. He'll be your light. Oh Lord, bless me and keep me your face to shine on me, Lord, be gracious, lift the light of your countenance, and give me
thank you for your word thank you for your power to move in our lives even in those still small moments when we are open to being transformed by your grace and Lord as we move from this moment let us never forget the difference that you've made in our lives today how you have visited with us and how you have made a difference and how you have empowered us to let go of long-held despair. When we look back on this day, Lord, may it just proclaim your fame even louder. Where we remember that we have been transformed by your very presence. In Jesus' name, amen.